0: All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. (sighs) We just finished reading Angela Y. Davis's Women Racing Class, which was a brilliant, brilliant book, an amazing read. I learned learned a lot. It was my first time reading it. The episode that you will have listened to right before this one if you're listening to them in chronological order. will be an episode where I give a reflection upon some of the things that I learned and some of the ways that the things that were spoken about in the book correlate with the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice that we are currently enduring here in Winnebago County. Sorry about that noise, y'all, trying to situate things. Uh This episode, we will begin reading a new book, and as anybody who is listening to this will have already seen, the title of that book is High Risers. The subtitle is Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing. This is a book that I have not read. Again, this is the second book now that we've read I haven't read. I'm looking very much forward to reading this and to getting some of the information that is Inside of here, it has a lot of direct connection with Rockford, Illinois, because Rockford is so close to uh, Chicago. Also, this is a, a little bit of a pivot from the some of the previous books that we have read here, as far as with the, the specificity of the topic that we are reading about in this book here. It also will be the longest book that we have read for these uh, for these podcast episodes. I have been trying to keep the book shorter, but as we've continued to do these episodes, I feel like I've grown with the audience. I feel like I've gotten into a, a better groove and a better cadence with doing some of the readings. And I don't necessarily think that it's a negative thing for us to be on a specific book for extended amount of episodes. So this is about 300 pages and I'm not sure how long it'll take us to get through, but we're going to get through it. And again, for anybody who may be listening for the first time, what we do here at Rafa Reading Daily is we read through pieces of literature, and as we are reading through them, we speak about how they correlate to issues we're facing here in Winnebago County with police, terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, uh, speak about how those issues or how these things presented uh, connect to movement building, connect to issues, and Uh, ideologies and philosophies that we have around the issues of police, terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. And excuse me, I'm trying to do one more thing to try to get this mic situated. I just don't want this. Got a little. Okay. We are on for anybody who may be reading following along at home. We are on chapter one portrait of a Chicago slum. Tucked into the elbow with the river tacks north, just beyond the loop and a mile from Lake Michigan, it is as historic a neighborhood as there is in Chicago. In 2016, it was named one of the city's best places to live. A couple of generations earlier, and more than a century after the banks of the near north side were settled, surveyors from the Chicago Housing Authority walked its narrow streets, confirming with every step their belief that it was a slum beyond salvation. The field team from the C.H.A. dodged trucks and trash heaps, careful lest they plunge into the open trenches dug for coal in front of the dwellings. The year was 1950, the quickening after the war in the nation's, quote, second city, end quote. Yet everything looked to be of the benighted past, benight past, benign past. Almost all the buildings dated to the previous century. Many of them were cheap frame constructions slapped up after the Great Fire of 1871. Temporary emergency shelters turned permanent. In their notebooks, the surveyors tallied the area's deprivations. Nearly half of the 2,325 homes were without a bath or shower. Many had no private toilet, and all but a few relied on cold stoves for heat. Over the previous decade, The population in the 25 square blocks has swelled to 3,600 families, increasing by 50 percent. Yet only a single new residential building had been added. Flimsy partitions carved up the apartments into multiple units. Quote, excuse the appearance of this place. End quote. A housewife apologized as she welcomed the researchers into her subdivided home. Quote. But we hardly have room to put ourselves someplace and this and there just ain't room for anything else. End quote. Despite the conditions, rent had jumped by 70 percent. Landlords overcharged for their fire traps. The following year, the CHA issued its report, Cabrini Extension Area, Portrait of a Chicago Slum, which depicted in lurid detail the neighborhood the agency hoped to replace. Quote, houses with black age and weathered with soot lean precariously and their uneven roof lines from crazy quilt patterns against the sky. Chimneys tilt, eaves sag, rags stick out from broken windows, and doors without knobs stand open. There are few backyards. There can't be when most of the lots contain two houses, end quote. Even the cover page sought to convey this ghetto and high squalor. A Trump. A a Trump. Poil, a Trump poil effect made the paper look burned and crumpled as if found in one of the grubby alleys. The title was lettered in thick, marked graffiti script with the drawing of a cockroach scuttling past the second eye in, quote, Cabrini, end quote. The employees of the Chicago Housing Authority in 1950 weren't paper pushing functionaries. They were self-proclaimed liberal do gooders many of them coming to the agency from social work. Their portrait of the near north side was meant to offend. They believed the slums of Chicago were killing people. House fires, infant mortality, pneumonia, tuberculosis, all occurred there at many times the rate found in the rest of the city. Poor housing conditions, the CHA noted, were contributing as well to high incidences of divorce, juvenile delinquency, and crime. The staff saw us work as a rescue mission. They needed to rid the city of blight. Quote, houses work magic, end quote. Their boss at the agency, Elizabeth Wood, would say, quote, give these people decent housing and the better forces inside them have a chance to work. Ninety nine percent will respond, end quote. Wood was unlikely. Wood was an unlikely government official in the Chicago of the Democratic machine. She previously taught poetry at Vassar College and published a novel about an unhappily married woman who imparts her frustration onto her children, a psychological study of merciless persecution, a reviewer wrote. wrote. She moved to Chicago to work for a welfare agency but found the job ineffectual. She wanted to do more than scribble notes as desperate clients detailed their wants. When the CHA was formed in 1937, she took over as its executive director. Private enterprise have failed to provide the agency's minimal requirement of a, quote, decent, safe and sanitary, end quote, home for all. The near north side district was just one of the woeful examples that the CHA brandished as proof. Wood fear not that the city's new public housing projects might be too large, coming to define an area as low rent, but that they wouldn't be large enough to counteract the ravages of poverty and disrepair around them, quote, if it is not bold, end quote, she said, quote, the result will be a series of small projects, islands in the wilderness of slums beaten down by smoke, noise and fumes, end quote. One of the islands Wood and her team hoped to expand was next to the near north side slum. In 1942, the CHA opened the Francis Cabrini Homes, 586 dwellings in barrack style two and three story buildings. Federal rules established that public housing be built to minimum standards using materials and designs unmistakably inferior to those found in market-rate housing. The Cabrini new houses were simple and unadorned, arranged in parallel columns like lines of park tractors, trailers. But in the neglected River District, they stood out as an oasis of order and modernity. Quote, like a challenge to the existing decay, end quote, the CHA declared, each of the Cabrini homes featured a gas stove, an electric refrigerator, a private bath, and its own heat controls. The buildings were made of, quote, fireproof brick, end quote, and the development was laid out so that parents could watch from their apartments as children played in communal courtyards. Quote, when you come upon one of Chicago's public housing developments, it is like stepping into a different world, end quote, the CHA rhapsodized in an early brochure. Quote, everywhere you see green, green of lawns, green of shrubbery, green of trees, Pleasant vine-covered buildings stand in harmonious groups, with plenty of space left for sun and air and children's play. Everywhere you see gardens, and overhead, and overhead stretches the sky that somehow looks bluer and sunnier than it did in the slums. The near north side was largely Italian for much of the first half of the 20th century. But a small black settlement formed there as well. The federal government restricted overseas immigration after the First World War, and so the factories along the river had vacancies they needed to fill. Most people also made great efforts to live far from the area's polluted work sites and ramshack homes. Thus, African Americans were able to move in. That was an anomaly in segregated Chicago. Chicago. As African-Americans turned their backs on the South, their population in Chicago more than doubled between 1910 and 1920, from 44,000 to 109,000, and then more than doubled again over the next decade and again over the next 20 years, reaching half a million by 1950. Up until the 1940s, almost all of these newcomers moved to the South Side in what was called the, quote, Black Belt, end quote. A broadening strip of land that extended south from the downtown business district. Uh, Okay, and then I think one of the things I want to do here, maybe as we're reading through this until we start getting deeper into some of the themes uh, that are in the in this book is speak about. Maybe that uh, like a treat it sort of like a previously on so. Previously on Ralph for Reading Daily, we have read about the reasoning that so many people were leaving, black people were leaving the South and coming to the Midwest and coming to and migrating to the Midwest and to the West Coast. And it was because of the type of terrorism that they were dealing with in the South because of the rise of white supremacy, the the not the the re the reawakening of white supremacy after the end of construction, that's this time period that's being spoken about here. Uh, we just read Women, Race and Class by Angela Y. Davis and this same time period here was spoken about a little bit. Uh, and so one of the other things that was happening is black people have begun to uh, hold office for a little bit and begin to build public school systems and begin to build communities in the south. Uh, at, at directly after the abolishment of slavery And there was a white backlash that occurred And the they laws began to be passed That made it so that they could not hold offices They could not uh, be, uh, have a equitable education And things of that nature uh, Jim Crow, this is the time that Jim Crow began to uh, rear his head And so these black people were fleeing the the. The South to come to Chicago, uh, basically as refugees trying to survive, and I think that that is something that's important to point out because it lets you know the type of traumas that these people have dealt with. Also, these this time period we're reading about, uh, it's important to point out that these people uh, would have be the descendants of of, of slaves. Uh, their grandparents, if not their parents, I would think, you know, for a lot of the or 1910s, 1920s, the, the, their parents would have been slaves if some of these people weren't slaves, hadn't been slaves previously uh, themselves. Uh, And so I think that that's something that's important to point out as we begin to learn about what this community and these people will endure uh, in this area. I think another thing that's important to point out is, as Angela Davis was talking about in our previous book, is the effects of capitalism and the type of exploitation capitalism has on working class people, uh, no matter what ethnicity or race they are. And so we see how here capitalism made it so that. These homes over time, the area, this this area that was spoken about doubled how many people lived in it. And only one building was added to the area. So now these people are crammed and and crammed together, which this is how slums are created and ghettos are created. And then on top of that, the the rent increased 70 percent in that same time period. And they talked about how some of these people didn't even have backyards and how one homes were subdivided into four homes. And this is a book that I believe probably goes very well with uh, the the color of law. If you haven't read that book, that's a very important book that also talks about the de jure and de facto segregation and some of these same things uh, when it comes to uh, housing. Uh, But here, let's continue going forward. And I also think it's important to point out the importance that the Chicago Housing Authority early on knew that housing had and the conditions that people live in had. And I think that's something that we have to continue to look at now and speak about now is that the conditions that people live in have a direct correlation and generate the type of uh, activity and actions that go on in those communities and those areas. The Europeans who made a home along the Chicago River's North Fork were free to test the private market elsewhere, even if affordable options were scarce. During the 40s, the vacancy rate in the city fell to less than 1%, a total of 8,000 available units for the entirety of Chicago. But African-Americans were forced to contend with a wholly separate real estate system. White neighborhoods established racial covenants, bylaws that barred homeowners from selling to African-Americans. At one point, 85% of Chicago was covered under these restrictions. Even after the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed the practice in 1948, enforcement and legal recourse were negligible, and neighborhoods found less subtle means, such as assaults and fire bombings, at least as effective. The federal government deemed existing black neighborhoods too risky for insured mortgages, coloring these areas red on its maps. Quote, redlining, end quote, meant mortgages, excuse me, quote, redlining, end quote, meant African-Americans could rarely purchase property in their own communities except through predatory rent-to-own contract sales in which buyers made inflated monthly payments but amassed no equity in the property. If or when they were evicted before the final payment for any number of infractions, they lost the home, the down payment, and all the preceding monthly installments. After escaping the... of the Jim Crow South drawn to Chicago by visions of a quote promised land end quote African Americans found themselves at the mercy of a speculative housing system in the North unjust and unpredictable in its own rights and so I think one of the things I want to say here is that again this is that that theme that we've seen throughout these books is the the feeling of taking two steps forward only to deal with taking four steps back or one step forward only to deal with taking two steps back or feeling as if you're as it being publicized or the narrative being that the community or the black people have taken a step forward when in re- reality they've just taken a step to the, to the side. And so what history will tell you is that they were able to escape the South and come to uh, Chicago and come to the Midwest and the, the West Coast and They no longer had to deal with the KKK and the lynchings and the extensive Jim Crow segregated segregation that was in the South. But in reality, they still had to deal with a a covert racism and a covert discrimination and a covert prejudice that existed in the uh, North, existed in the East, that existed in the Midwest, that existed in the West Coast. And so it was not truly uh, an escape from these things. It was a different form of it. It was uh, covert uh, racism instead of uh, overt racism. And uh, overt racism uh, was them being lynched in the South, them being Emmett Till. Covert racism is forcing black people to live in less, live in substandard housing conditions, live in, uh, get substandard education. Uh, and that leads to to a, a degradation of the, the, the consciousness that leads to a, a demoralization of a human being. And so it's a different form of, of, of lynching, a different form of, of killing. Landlords in black neighborhoods enjoy both overwhelming demand for their properties in a captive market. They not only charged high rents for their rundown dwellings, but also divided existing apartments into numerous, quote, kitchenette, end quote, units. The practice, while common throughout overcrowded Chicago, was epidemic in the Black Belt. Within the same square footage, the number of occupants and the amount of revenue increased exponentially. Cut a six-family walk-up in half to house 12 families into separate one-room apartments to make many more. There was no economic incentive for landlords to fix up their South Side properties. Redlining meant that banks wouldn't loan them money for the work anyway. So think about that. Just that means that these these black people, this wasn't something that just happened overnight. These black people were being exploited and being overcharged to live in this segregated neighborhood. They had no options but to live in these neighborhoods. And then the people who were the landlords, the slumlords, the, this is the, the inception of slumlords, the beginnings of slumlords, at least as we know them today, they were absent. They weren't there. They weren't keeping up with the uh, with the housing. They had no incentive or no motive to. They knew that these people had nowhere else that they could go. It was the same reason that they could overcharge them to live in worse housing in, this, uh, in where black people were at than white people were paying to live in better housing is because the white people had other options to go to. Uh, And the black people did not. And and again, I think that it's important to point out the type of psychological effects that this has on people, people that were already psychologically traumatized uh, in the first place because that's what led them to come there. With too many families crammed into airless wood frame dwellings, forced to use alternative heating and cooking methods, with exposed wires and extension cords snaking in every direction from improvised walls and transoms to plug into the one or two overloaded circuits, fires were rampant. And because the kitchenettes were divided by nailed up doorways and partitions that were themselves flammable, and because they lacked windows and safe exits, the fires too often proved deadly. Quote, the kitchenette is our prison, our death sentence without a trial. The new form of mob violence that assaults not only the lone individual, but all of us in his ceaseless attacks, end quote. Richard Wright, who came to Chicago in 1927 from Mississippi by way of Memphis, lamented in his 12 million black voices, quote, the kitchenette is the funnel through which our pulverized lives flow to ruin and death on the city pavement at a profit, end quote. In the years following the Second World War, Some 23 square miles of Chicago was said to be blighted, a tenth of the entire city. A quarter million homes, one fourth of Chicago's total, were considered substandard. Chicagoans of all backgrounds were in need of the assistance of government run public housing. But in the black slums of the South Side, the need was greatest. Quote, due to his disadvantageous position, excuse me, quote, due to his disadvantageous position in the present housing market, the Negro is the chief victim of excessive rents, end quote. The Cabrini Extension Area report concluded. Okay, I wanna point out in that last passage that we just read the how currently there are people still living in slums like this, still living in overcrowded not properly kept up with dwellings in this country, in this society. Uh, and the, the disproportionate amount of people living in those are people of color. Uh, the only people living in those are people who are of working class or lower class status in this country. Uh, there was just a story not too long ago, maybe a couple of days ago or last weekend, about a a fire that took place in New York where 19 people were killed in the fire and it was said that to have started from a an electric heater somehow. And so I just think that one of the things I want to point out is how some of these some of these issues with housing are still in existence and I'm sure that that is something that we'll hear about as we continue on reading this book. Okay, sorry, trying to get situated here. Sorry about that. Dolores Wilson. We're on page eight. Dolores Wilson. One of Wright's 12 million, a woman in her 20s who felt condemned to her south side tenement, was a lifelong Chicagoan named Dolores Wilson. At the start of the 1950s, she and her husband, Hubert, were parents to five children ages eight to one. Quote, five snotty snotty-nosed kids running around end quote, Dolores liked to say with fiend annoyance. The Wilsons had a one-room basement apartment on the 6,000 block of South Prairie Avenue beside the grinding rattle of the L train and the trolley on the 61st Street. The children slept on one side of the room on a pull-out couch and she and Hubert in a bed along the opposite wall. Quote, with that arrangement, end quote, Dolores would say, quote, I'm not sure how the last child ever got made, end quote. The shower was propped up in the kitchen. The one window opened onto an alley. To use the toilet, they had to walk out their door and down the hallway, then past the laundry room to the bathroom that Wilson shared with the family renting the back side of the partitioned basement. She never felt safe in that building. One night while Hubert was at work, a man tried to break in through the window. Quote, oh Lord, end quote, Dolores cried while watching the guy struggle to shimmy his way inside. The children asleep not six feet away. She managed to take out a little pistol Hubert had left her and call the police the phone trembling in one hand and the gun in the other. An officer who answered said she could go ahead and shoot the burglar, but only after he set foot in the apartment. Luckily, the man noticed her and took off. Dolores wasn't one to complain, or rather, she had a way of doing it dryly. A A genial sounding protest, continuing all the while to make the best of a situation. She bought material from a five and dime and cut a red canopy for the mirror in the apartment sole window. She found red dishes and a red checkered tablecloth to match, decorating the apartment the way she liked it. Quote, it doesn't matter where you are, end quote, she liked to say, quote, it's after you put your fingerprint on it, then it's your home, end quote. Dolores Wilson has such a pleasant seeming brightness about her, her voice soft and high like a confection that she'd laugh out of frustration or spite and then feel the need to explain that it wasn't intended to be a funny laugh. She called most people, quote, dear, end quote, though not infrequently, she meant it wryly. Quote, I try to get along with everybody, even the ones I don't get along with, end quote. She was careful to say, quote, thank you, father, for a roof over our heads, end quote. Everyone at least needed that. But it could feel like too much to cope with when the cold cut through the walls or the structure meant to house your family might be killing them. The Chicago Defender, the city's leading black newspaper, kept count of the casualties from Southside house fires. Quote, Negro children and women are dying like rats in fires in dilapidated homes unfit for human habitation. Homes that are in reality fire traps, which should have been condemned long ago by responsible officials. End quote. The paper wrote in one of many reports. Dolores often heard the sirens of the fire trucks. She knew that if her tenement went up in flames, they likely wouldn't make it out of the basement alive. The Wilsons had moved a few times within the confines of their neighborhood, but the other apartments were no better. Options for them were limited. Landlords told her she had too many children or that children older than Tyler's caused trouble. Dolores and Hubert paid $10 to a real estate agent who promised to provide them with a special list of quality apartments. Dolores traveled to each apartment the agent gave her, finding herself in front of yet another Southside fire trap. She double checked that the address matched what she'd written down in her carefully looping script. The six flats before her listed to one side with rotting wood or missing bricks. Inside, the floors drooped, the walls buckled and the ceilings leaked. The plaster and paint crumbled about could poison her children. Quote, "Uh uh-uh, end quote, she'd say, backing away as the smells of greens and other food cooking from a dozen kitchenettes assailed her. Quote, it made me want to go in there and fix a plate, but I didn't want to move in, end quote, she'd say. Quote, if their food is loud, you know all the noise they're going to make, end quote. Ten dollars was a fortune to them, but after several of these trips, Dolores had to accept that they'd been had. Born Dolores Sanders in 1929 at Chicago's Cook County Hospital, she grew up on that same block of 6000 South Prairie. Her mother's mother was an adventurer, a woman of means, who gave birth to each of her four children in a different state. Dolores' mother was originally from Eastern Ohio, cold country, and she moved with her family to Chicago. Dolores' father followed a brother up north from Georgia. Her parents met in high school, and they settled into the apartment on Prairie as the Block's last remaining Jewish family was set to depart. Dolores was one of their five children, and they lived well there. Dolores's mother worked as an assistant precinct captain for the local Democratic machine boss. Her father had a job as a presser and a tailor, even during the Depression years. He kept his plants pleased, excuse me, he kept his plants pleated, his shoes polished to a high shine, and a satin banded hat cocked jauntily to one side. Dolores could hardly remember a time she saw him in work clothes. Quote, he stayed immaculate, so sharp, end quote, she say. If she or her sisters noticed a piece of lint on his suit jacket, they knew to pick it off him. Dolores met Hubert when she was 14, soon after graduating from Betsy Ross Elementary. Her family usually went to a Baptist church across the street from their apartment, but occasionally they traveled four blocks west to the Uplifting of Humanity, a sanctified church led by her Aunt Rhea. Huber was left-handed and sang in the choir, the dum-da-dum-dum of his bass drawing Dolores' gaze to him. When Huber built up the nerve to phone and ask Dolores on a date, her parents said no. Dolores had almond shaped eyes and a waggish intelligence, so he tried again. Her mother consented to an outing, but she calculated exactly how long it would take the two of them to travel by train to a movie theater downtown to see the coming attractions, a cartoon and a double feature, and then return home. Quote, no monkeying around, end quote, she ordered. Quote, go see that movie, get on the L and come back, end quote. If they returned from a date just a couple of minutes late, Hubert wouldn't walk Dolores upstairs. Choosing to be unmannerly rather than face her parents. Once Hubert bought Dolores a sweater, her father made her give it back. He had a ban on gifts. A boy would expect sex in return. Quote, you better not be having any sex, end quote, her mother added. Quote, but if you are, make sure to use a rubber. End quote. Her parents made it clear that there was no greater moral failing than getting pregnant, forbidding Dolores from even socializing with the girls believed to be fast. When Dolores' sister became pregnant, their father forced her into an unhappy marriage. Fearing her getting too serious, Dolores' parents didn't allow her to go steady with any one guy. Throughout high school, she dated not only Hubert, but also George, Clifford, Otis, Frank, and Bo. It was a short stroll from her apartment past South Parkway, which would later be renamed Martin Luther King Drive, and over to the expanse of Washington Park. She sit on the benches with her different boyfriends or walk with them around the lagoon or watch the games in the fields. Dolores loved her some Frank Jenkins, but she figured she loved Hubert more. Hubert looked older than the rest of them, even though he was the same age, and he could make Dolores laugh the way he told outlandish stories, his wit matching hers. People would say that the two of them together, with their banner, could have a comedy act on the radio. Hubert quit high school his junior year to help with his family's expenses. He was the type who'd do any sort of job as long as it was legal. He shoveled coal into people's basements, cut ice from the lake, delivered refrigerators, laid tile. Dolores didn't realize how well off her family was until she and Huber started swapping tales about the depression. More than 40% of all working men in Chicago were unemployed during those years and the city had a shortage of 150,000 affordable homes with the demand increasing and nothing new being built. A Hooverville formed downtown on the outskirts of Grant Park, hundreds of jerry-built structures made of cardboard, scrap, and tar paper. Quote, Building construction may be at a standstill elsewhere, but down here everything is booming. End quote. An out-of-work miner and railroad brakeman who'd been elected, quote, mayor, end quote, of the shantytown told the press. On the south side, Dolores had her clothes dry cleaned at her father's shop and when her father was drafted into the Navy her mother found work at a factory making aircraft. Hubert on the other hand had been eating neck bones cooked every kind of way fried boiled broiled barbecued. His family had an apartment a meager one but they subsisted on the government charity boxes with not to be sold stamped on them. It was no surprise to Dolores that her father didn't think Hubert good enough for her Always the dandy, her dad would stand in the wide window of their apartment, one shine shoe propped up on the seal and at the side of Hubert say, quote, here comes Pete the Tramp, end quote, referring to the old comic strip. He turned it into a kind of mocking song as Hubert ampled up the block in his work clothes, a shovel hefted over his shoulder, a cigar stub tucked into the corner of his mouth, a dusting of coal on his hands and face. When Dolores was 18 in 1947, and enrolled at Woodrow Wilson Junior College, Hubert picked her up after classes. One day, when they reached Prairie Avenue, he wouldn't get out of the car. He stared silently into his lap, his chest heaving. He was sweating so much, he looked to be melting. Then with a dour expression, he asked Dolores if she would marry him. Now she couldn't breathe, feeling she might have, be having a heart attack. But soon they were both laughing and quickly picked a date for the wedding and started hurling ahead through the years. Imagining the many milestones to come in their lives together. Then the thought paralyzed Dolores. Which one of them was going to tell her parents? Quote, you are. End quote, he said. Quote, uh-uh, you. End quote. And we that brings us to a, a switching of the theme in this chapter. We're going to stop right here. I'm interested to see where this is going to go. I think one of the things that stands out to me about what we just read of Dolores's. uh of Dolores' childhood and Dolores' upbringing, I should say, is it makes me think of my grandfather. My grandfather, who is 82 years old, who wouldn't have been born the exact same year. Dolores was born in 1929. He wouldn't have been born that exact same year, but uh, he had older siblings who would have been born closer to that year, and he would have grown up in in a, a similar time period as Dolores. And a lot of times I when i feel as if maybe we're far removed from certain societal issues or far removed from certain moments in history i i think back to my grandfather who's alive who's 82 and think about the things that he's seen i think about older family members that i have who are uh, more than 80 or 90 years old and i think about the things that they've seen when i talk to other people and hear about their family members their grandparents or great-grandparents who are still alive and think about the things that they've seen it reminds me of How close we really are to some of these periods and times uh, where the oppression, exploitation and racism was more overt than it is now. And so we're going to end this episode here. We will be back tomorrow with another episode of Rock for Reading Daily. I'm excited to continue reading High Risers by Ben Austin. And I would encourage people to please go back and listen to previous episodes of Rock for Reading daily. And if future episodes are out by the time you get this, go listen to those future episodes as well. We outside.